We are kind of in this series called Set Apart, and I'm just going to use the scripture passages, uh, the series verses, just to help us know why we're there as a church, where we're going, and what we're talking about when we say set apart, okay? This comes from 1 Peter, or Peter's letter to the church um, uh, in the New Testament. This is 1 Peter 1. He tells us, as he's talking to the church about living their life, prepare our minds for action and exercise self-control to put all our hope in the gracious salvation that will come to us when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. It says, you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into the old ways of living to satisfy, satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. He's saying, you know, there's a way you used to live, you know, before Christ. You didn't know any better then. You know, move forward with this new life. He says, what this new life looks like? Now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. And then he goes on to talk about an Old Testament passage. The scriptures say in Deuteronomy, you must be holy because I am holy. Again, it's not necessarily the way we use that word holy. We use that word as some sort of picture of an unattainable, perfect, you know, kind of a lot of halos and white glowing things. Like we, we, we picture the word holy as something that we can't even come close to. And yet that's what Peter is telling us that we're called to be. So there must be something there in terms of how we use that word, what the word means. Again, we're going to look at, uh, again, Second Peter, or sorry, First Peter chapter 2. He goes on again to pull a word out from the Old Testament that means the same thing. You are not like that. He's talking about the way they used to live. You are chosen people. King James says peculiar people. He's pulling it again from a reference in Deuteronomy of chosen or holy. He says you're, ho you're royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession, and as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of this darkness into his wonderful light. Just to help us clarify where we're going and why we're calling the series Set Apart is we want to redefine the word holy and holiness, not to dumb it down for us, but to better understand how did God mean for us to read it and to see it understood in this, in this original Hebrew language. The Hebrew is a very um, illustrative language. It usually has a lot of meanings packed in, but there's two parallel meanings in this word. Okay? And it means to be separated from something and to be set apart for something. So when they're using this word holy in reference to God, yes, they are talking about separation from sin and set apart for God. They're talking specifically about that, but it's not so much this idea of perfection uh, as, as God is, but not for us. He's saying you need, to be called, you need to be holy because he wants you to be separated from and set apart for. And that's really this idea of like, okay, that's what the Christian life is called to be. How are we going to be set apart for God? What does that really look like? Other than just slapping the bumper sticker on that says Christian, right? What does that really mean? And here's the other thing we have to acknowledge. This is not natural for us. Like it doesn't, we, none of us wake up in the morning and just like, oh, I can't wait to be holy today. Like, nobody wakes up with that desire, strong desire in their heart. Matter of fact, this is a great quote from D.A. Carson. He says, people do not drift towards holiness, right? Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. That our, our natural drift, or sort of you would like if a magnet was kind of pulling us, it would be away from God, not towards him. So it takes an intentionality. It takes a, again, grace-driven effort on our part 
to, to kind of understand, well, what does it mean to be set apart? And we've talked the last couple weeks about different ideas. What does it mean to be set apart in a world of fractured moralism, right? What does it lo- look like when, when some things rise and fall? And again, some, some morals uh, that, that the culture lives by, some of those look really close to Christian values. So a lot of Christians have leaned into moralism for a while, but now there's a whole lot of morals that are being accepted and, and people are like, well, that's not right. And, you know, and, and there is no kind of standard for right and wrong when it comes to moralism. So how do followers of Christ stand apart and be set apart for him? Last week, we talked specifically about the people who are rejecting God, um, not necessarily because they just don't believe who God is like a, like a full on atheist, but just people who are rejecting God out of indifference and impartiality. They're indifferent because there's a lot of people who just don't think it makes any difference. That God is, who, you know, like it, whether you want to believe in God or not believe in God, you got your thing and I got mine, and, you know, it really doesn't, really doesn't matter. It's kind of they're indifferent to the fact that it has any meaning to life. Or there's a great push right now in our culture for kind of the spiritual awakening of spiritualism. And it's this idea, a lot of it's driven by the occult, but it's this idea of let's just be open to all spiritual things. You know, all roads lead to the same eventual place. You can have your yin and yang and your enlightenment and I'll have my this and, you know, you have that. I mean, that's kind of this idea that it doesn't really matter. It can be anything you really want. They'll fill the void with anything outside of God to, to, to kind of uh, be impartial over. So, we talked last week about, about that, just the indifference, the impartiality, and how do we set, be set apart in that. Today, we're going to look at how can followers of Jesus be set apart in a culture of chronic anxiety? How can followers of Jesus be set apart in a culture of chronic anxiety? Let's talk about two different things here, just to help you know where we're going. Um, anxiety is a very real thing. It's just part of how our body responds to emotions and the things that we are all, everybody's had those moments of anxiety. You can call it what you want, fear, fear, worry, dread, panic. You know, every person in here has heard their spouse say, hey, we got to talk about something. And we've all had that moment, right? Anxious, you know, kind of comes up, anxiety comes up. Like, it doesn't matter what it is. Our kids say something, come dad, come look at this on the car. You know, it doesn't matter. Like, we've all had small moments, well, we've all had the feeling, and that's considered circumstantial. It's considered kind of like acute kind of anxiety in terms of what it is. But there is such a thing as, uh, as actual anxiety disorders. All right, so the, uh, with the, um, uh, sorry, the National Institute of Mental Health, the NIMH, they kind of categorize it as GAD, generalized anxiety disorder. That's what they call it, okay? So if somebody says, I struggle with anxiety or I've been diagnosed with that, that's what they're talking about about primarily, okay, and it's, it's the number two most common mental illness that we deal with in the Western world. Uh, it's right behind depression, about 40 to 60 million. Uh, they they kind of guess in terms of, especially after the pandemic, they don't know, um, but it's about that, and, and, and it's medicated, you know, pretty heavily too as well with depression uh, and some of the past in terms of trying to managing it. Um, the word chronic is kind of being used now to talk about not just GAD, but the idea that since the pandemic and since kind of the nature of, as we'll read about, kind of the cultural waves, that chronic anxiety is happening because even if you don't struggle necessarily from, or you maybe do have a touch of the GAD, like it's, it's what's happened during the pandemic is everybody's alarm kind of went up, everybody's senses kind of got heightened, and then it never turned off. 
All right, does everybody make sense of that? Like, like the anxiety went up or, or the level, whatever level you struggle with kind of went up, but it never turned off. And so this chronic word is starting to come out to say we are dealing with a chronic case of anxiety because of the persistence that we're seeing with anxiety in these cases. So here's the, the definition that you'll get online. A persistent feeling of anxiety or dread that we believe can, we cannot manage. Okay, so it's, 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 it's overwhelms. This anxiety is always, you know, out of proportion to the actual circumstance. So there may be something that, that it's tied to, but it's usually out of proportion to that. And it's difficult to manage, and it affects how we feel physically. Most anxiety has physical effects, right? Um, panic disorders or panic can, can make it seem like you're having a heart attack. Okay, most anxiety comes with a physical thing. I remember sitting with my counselor and she, she kind of showed me in, the bo- in my body where dread lived. Like when I dread things, which is part of anxiety, she was like, you know, I actually felt it physically. It's so weird, okay? It's just like, it's weird. But I actually felt it and it was like, oh, I'm, I'm able to identify the physical response that my body has to this. Another reason we're seeing the chronic anxiety is because... Because when you physically respond to it, and, and, the, and it's kind of always on, now this heightened sense is always on, then the physical responses actually create more to be anxious about. So we're, we're, we're done, we're, we can't understand and manage our own mental illness. We can't manage our own anxiety. Now we can't manage our own physical symptoms. So it only creates more anxiety, and it just fuels it. All right? Now, the reality is, is that it's very good. The conversation around anxiety as, a, as a, uh, mental, a mental disorder is really a good positive thing. Just to hear that, like, there's a lot of people who personally struggle, need counseling, need therapy, need, need some way to help address some of those, uh, those things in their life. We needed to remove the shame and the stigma that kind of uh, came with that, which is, again, which is very, very good. But we're not going to address it today from the personal side of you. Like, we're not really going to talk, but we'll mention a little, a couple things, but from the personal side of how you might currently struggle with this is not kind of the goal today. The goal today is to talk about how this, what people do struggle with individually, is now becoming a cultural movement. It's now becoming something that is kind of widespread, sort of the fuel, if you will, behind a momentum or a wave of cultural anxiety that we see in government leaders, uh, school leaders, teachers, uh, healthcare. We see it across the board in leadership. We see it across the board in the information and social media and media that we get is this wave of cultural chronic anxiety. All right. Now, just to give you an example of why, I'm going to read you a couple of reports, but I want to just give you, and I wrote this, this little section this morning because I wanted you to get it fresh from me. This is what was on my phone this morning. So I go to my Apple News, you know, I sc- scroll over and I look at the quick highlights of Apple News, okay? This is what Apple wanted me through my, my news notifications to know about this morning. I'm summarizing the headlines, obviously, uh, but here's what I got. War in the Ukraine. Continued war in Gaza. Uh, January, more January 6th videos are being made public. There are election problems and predictions for projections for 2024. There's winter preparation for COVID and vaccines. 
Two people were charged with the murder after a missing four-year-old girl's body was found. A man was arrested in Connecticut for murder and kidnapping. People are moving out of California into Texas in droves. Social security is failing and doesn't seem to make sense anymore for our current culture. Tis the season to stress out, was an article I had. Um, Psychological hacks to end holiday stress. And listen, if that wasn't enough, something ran into the planet Pluto and exploded. (laughs) I wish I was kidding. And somebody caught it on a telescope and is posting pictures online. So after I'm reading all of these headlines, I just, I had to write that down because I was like, and of course something hit Pluto, right? (laughs) Of course. So here's the reason I wanted to read that to you because um, the Columbia University started this study, you can look it up, it's called Anxiety Culture, the New Global State of Human Affairs. And when you go read that study, you go read a little bit about what they were trying to find, it's basically trying to find where did this cultural wave come from? Why is it? that our children in school seem to be being raised in a culture of anxiety, no longer just them personally dealing with anxiety? Why is it that that sections of the country are dealing with more anxiety when their leaders or people that are are maybe setting rules and doing things are leaning in and actually kind of causing some of this? They're like, where is this coming from? So here's just a few, just a couple quick things I'm going to read, a couple quotes from this study. It says, as the developed world increases their general knowledge and technological capability, they're more likely to react to this higher level of awareness with anxiety, thus continuing to make it a cultural norm. Anxiety culture is more than fear about threatening developments or potential dangerous incidents. It is becoming the characteristics of how we deal with increasing problems and undefined solutions in a rapidly changing world. Basically, what their study is, is basically saying, look, we don't just have people that struggle with anxiety. We have a culture, a wave, a momentum of everyone responding to this fast, rapidly changing world with a constant state of alarm and anxiety. That's what we are all dealing with. Does that make sense? So I want us to look at a few things, why we need to pay attention to this. What do we need to know about this cultural anxiety before we look at how the scripture calls us to kind of respond or be set apart in this? Here's a few things to know. I just wrote a few things down for us to know about it, about this culture of chronic anxiety. First thing I want you to know is it's contagious, okay? It's contagious. It it doesn't take more than just one one in a group to really kind of be an example of this and to kind of heighten the level of anxiety in a group of people. Here's the way the Harvard Business Review actually says it. Chronic anxiety is contagious and as dangerous as any pathogen. If people around you function in a constant state of stress and worry, you will start feeling and mirroring similar emotions. Okay, About half the room in here just checking. Yeah, about half the room in here remembers Y2K. You guys all remember Y2K? Yeah, Y2K. All right, we were caught up in the hysteria that up to that point, everything, our gas, our electric, our phones, our communications, the internet, so on and so on, everything up to this point that we had already started running on computers was going to all crash and fail when we went to two zeros. Everybody remember that? Yeah. 
That's a picture of chronic anxiety, a wave of chronic anxiety that overtook everyone, right? It was contagious. It was this thing of like, does anybody have any idea what's going to happen? And we all went, no, do you? Well, then let's pack some cereal up or something. Let's get some food or dry beans or something. I mean, I had friends who had water and gas for their generator. And I mean, we just, everybody approached it a little bit differently, right? It's, it, was, it was a true case of it. Here's what I read in scripture. One of the couple things I read that kind of helps me see where this comes from. Now, in 2 Timothy, we read a scripture quite often that talks about all the word of, everything in the word of God is is breathed out from the Holy Spirit. It's all inspired from the Holy Spirit. It's there to rebuke and teach and correct us. Uh, But right after that passage, it says this. A time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. Right? They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will teach them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. Paul is sharing with Timothy, look, there's going to just come a time, and there's going to be times, in which people just, they're not going to accept the truth that they have in the now. They're going to chase after the hysteria and the myths of everything and anything to try to fill the void that comes with worry, fear, dread, and anxiety. And this is one of those times. I believe we live in, the, in an age where people, I mean, people will fill the void of what their anxious minds create with anything and everything except the truth that we currently have given to us. I mean, we're sooner to suspect that aliens are the answer, right? Or something else is possible than we are to look at the truth of the word of God. Why? Because fear and anxiety will draw masses to an unknown future, while the truth is really called to draw you to a present understanding. The truth of God's word is to call you to a present understanding of who he is and who he is supposed to be for you and for me. Not about our future. We do have some, some, some of his word about the future and, you know, hashtag Jesus wins. I don't know what else to tell you. Like, there's a lot of stuff I don't understand. I do know that Jesus wins. Every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess that Jesus it wins. Jesus is Lord. But I'm telling you, for the things I don't know, the thing that fear and anxiety and dread and panic and this cultural movement will cause is just really playing into people's kind of, you know, kind of circular chronic anxiety. Because when we start filling those voids with any other answer other than him, it doesn't actually solve anything. It doesn't actually make us less anxious. It just continues to fuel it. That's how we know it doesn't work. Paul, or sorry, Peter tells us, you know, the first verse that we read today, Peter says, prepare your mind, right? Prepare your minds and get ready. Paul tells us in, to the church in Rome, he tells us something very similar. He says, part of how we do this is we don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world. We let God transform us and transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. The renewing of your mind is what it's called in, in the New Living, or in the New uh, International. It says, then you will le- learn to know what God's will is for you, is good and pleasing and perfect will. You know, if you look at what everybody's caught up in when it comes to this, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's current, factual stuff, or full-on conspiracy. When you look at what everybody's sort of caught up in, in this sort of culture of chronic anxiety, 
It's all about the customs and behaviors of right now and in this world. That's what it is. That's what we're all obsessed over. That's what all the social media arguments are about. And here's Paul saying, look, your transformation is going to come as you understand, you understand that, yeah, this contagious wave is going to be there, but you are called out of that by the renewing of how you think, by the changing of the way you think, by the renewing of your mind. This plays into the second note I wrote down, which is that it's distracting, right? This culture of chronic anxiety is distracting. It it's plays into the enemy's goal, goal, the goal of the enemy. We talked about this last week with spiritual warfare is to distract us, that there isn't anything to worry about. It's to take our mind off of God and to on to all the other things we could possibly think about and to be distracted. And so I love this passage. This is actually a passage from James that we read a couple weeks ago as a church. And, and we're going to read it in the, me, in the message paraphrase. I just love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases out this, this passage in James 1. He says, don't fool yourself into thinking that you're a listener when you're anything but letting the word go in one ear and out the other. You need to act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea who they are or what they look like. But whoever catches a glimpse of the revealed counsel of God, right, the free life, even out of the corner of their eye, and sticks with it. Well, they're no distracted scatterbrain, but they're a man or woman of action. That person will find delight and affirmation in that action. He goes on to talk about faith versus action and works and how it all comes together. But here's that, that passage, and I love those words, right? Like, you know, when you are, most of the time, followers of Christ will speak about God in one way, but then they respond into this culture of anxiety the same way everybody else does, because we're just distracted. We're completely distracted by the same thing that everybody else is distracted by. And we forget and every bit of energy that we spend with our anxiety being spent on worrying about what could be, worrying about the worst possible scenario, worried about, you know, how this looks about me and how this feels and how this, every time we live in that anxiety and we live in that kind of wave, we are not doing what God called us to do. So therefore, we're not even, we're just letting the word of God go in one ear and out the other. And we're not experiencing that free life that he says. Well, what's that look like for us? Well, if it's distractions, the problem, then focus is the answer. And here's how the writer of Hebrew, the author of Hebrews, says it after we read that we did a series on faith uh, this past series. And we read this, Hebrews 11, quite a bit in terms of the hall of faith and the people of God. And Romans, or sorry, Hebrews 12 says, he says, now in light of this, in light of all this, therefore, since we're surrounded, right, by this huge crowd of witnesses of faith, everybody he just read, wrote about, he's a little, let us strip off every weight that slows us down especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. How do we do that? We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. I love that the writer of Hebrews says, look, there's, there's sin that will entangle you, yes. But as he talks about these runners very much in the kind of the Greek world of where they would kind of run without any, any clothing. They'd run with, as free as possible so there's no friction or whatever. Like, that's the, the illustration or visual he's giving. He's really kind of saying, like, get rid of the stuff that distracts you. Get rid of the stuff that trips you up. Which, again, we know 
we know this, this kind of culture of anxiety is a distracting culture. It's going to keep our eyes not fixed on Jesus, but fixed on the here and the now. Here's the third thing real quick. And I don't, I don't use this phrase properly, but it really is a false prophet. Okay, now, now there are physical, real life, flesh and blood false prophets that were warned about in Scripture. The Old Testament talks about them. The New Testament talks about be careful of false prophets who turn you away from God. You know, we look at Revelation and there's an actual closing out false prophet who leads everyone away from God towards the Antichrist. Like, there's an actual false prophet in the future, so to speak, that will be named that. But here's what I mean by a false prophet. False prophet wants, again, anything to distract you and pull you away from God. But, but here's what a false prophet does. He gets you and I to put our, our focus and our devotion and our attention on something less than God. And, and what the culture of anxiety does, this culture of, of chronic anxiety does, is it tells us that if we would just focus more and more and more and more on the things we are anxious about, that things will change. And we're being lied to and deceived. That if we will give it time, if we will give it energy, if we will give it our devotion, we will make our life about that. That eventually something will give and change. And here's what Jesus said. This is one of my favorite parts of the, the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus is talking about, kind of again, not in the same words, but kind of this culture of worry. And just because this isn't new. This isn't new to us. We may be seeing a heightened part of it right now, but... This isn't brand new. This is Jesus saying, this is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. He's talking to his people who also spent time worrying about everyday life. What to have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear? Isn't life more than food? Isn't the body more than just to hang clothes on? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. Their heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you more far more valuable to them than they are? Can all of your worries add a single moment to your life? The reason he asked this question is because the answer is in what he just taught. He says it can't. You know, the false prophet's going to tell you, focus on all the things you can't control and all the things that can't, you don't know the answer to. If you'll just give your time and devotion to it, then, then that's the best thing you can do to see something change. But it doesn't do anything. It doesn't change anything. It only keeps you more anxious. And Jesus goes, yeah, can any of that actually add a moment to your life? Can any of it change anything? No, it can't. He keeps going. Why worry about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make clothing. And yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. He says, if God cares for so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow. They're so temporary. He will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Again, this goes back to our last series, not a measurement of faith. Why do you have so little faith in me, the object of faith, is what he's talking about. Don't worry about these things. Saying, what will you eat? What will you drink? And what will you wear? Basically, life. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly father already knows all your needs. So he he draws a line and says, look, as clear as I can make it, there are people who do not believe 
in God. They don't believe in, they don't have, they, they don't have a choice but for their life to be dominated by fear, anxiety, and everything else. They don't have a choice. That's their life. But he's saying if you, he's talking to God's followers, his people, but if you who have God, you already have a father who knows everything you need. There should already be a clear distinction in your life. There should already be a clear way that sets you apart. So then he gives the advice. He says, look, seek the kingdom of God above all else. Right? Live righteously, which is, which is basically living out the, the call, the, the righteousness that he's given us. And he's going to give you everything else you need. Right? He's going to take care of you. He's going to do it. It's because we understand he's our provider. But he get, he's like, focus. Where does the kingdom of God, where does, he, where does it need to be? Above all else. <laughs> and this is one of my favorite parts of this whole message. Okay? Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. I mean, it's not a Hallmark card, right? But it's close, right? No, it's nothing like that. Like, nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. Why? Because anxiety is part of this false prophet of anxiety. Is the false prophet side of this is anxiety will paint a future for you that hasn't happened yet. But will say it in such a way that it's absolute truth. That it absolutely is true, that it absolutely exists, and that it's absolutely going to happen. That's what anxiety does. And the false prophet that anxiety really does fuel, especially when it's a culture of where everybody's making decisions based on this. This kind of false idea that, oh, that's exactly the way it's going to be, and that's exactly what's true. We're sitting there looking at Jesus. He's saying, you can't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got its own problems. Just be today. Today, he, he taught us to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. He didn't tell us to pray for tomorrow's bread. He told us to pray for today's bread, right? Give us this day our daily bread, right? God, I don't know how else to say it, but Jesus promised us that he would walk with us through everything, okay? He would walk through every actual problem you have. He can't walk through your potential problems. Everybody with me? He can't because they don't exist. They're in your mind. He can't walk through what you're anxious about because it doesn't exist. And yet he told us he would never leave us or forsake us. That's the promise that we have. He cannot and will not, as we oftentimes want him to, remove the potential truth that we are so convinced is true, but doesn't actually, it's not actually, it's not real. It's all up here. It's all in us. And for us as followers of Christ, it's one of the reasons he says, you're called to today. You're called to this moment. Listen, it's not that different. People who struggle with the GAD if they go to a therapist, and this is a very common um, practice, it's usually more for people who have acute or I would say increasingly kind of shutting down modes of, of anxiety. So it doesn't matter if it's social anxiety or whatever the case is. People who struggle with kind of like getting overwhelmed quickly and kind of sh their body kind of reacting to it, they have a, a tool. It's a very good tool. It's called the 333 rule, okay? 
I don't know if you've ever heard this, but this is just a very simple tool. It, it, they tell you to name three things you see, list three things you hear, and move three parts of your body. So therapists and counselors will walk people through and say, okay, this is a tool to help you navigate your anxiety. You know, when you, when you feel yourself sort of shutting down, you know, list three things you see, list three things you hear, just name them out, call them out, and then move three parts of your body. It works. Why does it work? Because Jesus already knew. You have to be present. You have to be present to get rid of anxiety. Because anxiety is all about putting you in some place that you are not currently in. It puts you in a future that doesn't exist. You leave the present, which is why the tool works. Name three things. Hear three things. Move three things. Oh, that's right. I'm here. I'm here, I'm now. And this, this is, this is where, again, kind of scripture and sort of what I, what I would call neuroscience sort of meet. When we really begin to see that everything scripture calls us to, in terms of kind of battling some of the battles in our mind, all aligns with the best tools people have, therapists and counselors have, to help us work through our anxiety and our fear and our depression. Because... God knew how we were wired, how we were designed. Now, let me give you my, this is my life verse. I had to say that this week because it is really a part of my calling. And again, I want to reiterate and reemphasize that, you know, are there people who struggle with generalized, uh, you know, anxiety disorder? There people who have uh, some specific things in terms of that mental illness that, that are struggling at a different level than maybe the average person. The answer is yes, and you do need to seek conversation and treatment and therapist for that. Like, don't, don't hear me say that you don't need that. That's a part of what God has given you as a provision, okay? But 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind is how I, I memorized it as my life verse. Self-discipline is what it means. The reality for the rest of us is, is there a spirit of fear actively at work in creating this culture of chronic anxiety that we all have to experience right now? And the answer is yes. There is a spirit of fear. It does not come from God. And that's why you need to have this verse in your mind. Because every time you are in a meeting, every time you hear the news, every time the leader gets up, every time you know people in healthcare get up, every time people in the in your school systems get up, and every time you hear somebody talking about something and you can sense the fact that it's all coming from a spirit of fear, you need to know that spirit exists. Because last week we talked about we are not fighting flesh and blood, we are fighting in unseen forces, principalities, and we said, look. God is, that doesn't come from God. He's called us to be set apart. And he's given us power by the Holy Spirit, power, love, and a sound mind. What is the, the biblical answer to this in terms of being set apart? It's easy. It's one word. It's the reason I'm teaching is because it's the week of Thanksgiving. Um, but it's gratitude. Gratitude is the answer. Now, gratitude is not the thing that people are going to always see that sets us apart. It's the result 
of what gratitude brings us that people will see and recognize. Yes, let me walk you through this. Gratitude is the thing that when Peter says, prepare your mind, and Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, you have to understand the way gratitude works. And we learned this actually from our therapist here, one of the therapists that works with us uh, at Journey. And I, I had to do research on my own just to see this, but it's, it's incredible the way the body works, the way the brain works. Listen, God has created us as some of the most beautiful, complex, I mean, you know, go through scripture, go through science. We are wonderfully made, okay? We are complex beings. We can do a lot of things at the same time. My body's doing a billion things right now that I don't even know that it's doing, okay? It's amazing, okay? Here's what's interesting. Your body and brain chemistry cannot simultaneously coexist with gratitude and anxiety. They are two different chemicals that do two very different things, and your body won't let you multitask. Everybody with me? You cannot do both at the same time. The reason this is so important is I think God knew Every time in the scriptures, he said, do not fear, do not fear, don't worry about today, don't, don't, don't worry, don't have this anxiety. He was saying, you can't operate there and operate in gratitude at the same time. It has to be displaced. You have to take action to remove it and to replace it with something. Gratitude is what replaces anxiety. Again, cannot coexist, cannot simultaneously be in you and functioning in terms of response in you at the same time. Now we want to read this passage together. This is from Philippians 4. But I love, love this letter to the church where Paul addresses a couple of things we already talked about earlier, but just kind of addresses this kind of call. What does it look like to replace that, that anxiety or to reject it, spirit of fear? This is in verse 6 of chapter 4. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything you can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true, what is honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting it into practice. All you've learned and received from me, everything you've heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. He says, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. I think, you know, I think sometimes Christians kind of feel like, well, that's kind of too small of a thing to bring to God. It's kind of a too small of a thing to, to pray about. Well, you know, it's funny because it's not too small of a thing to make you anxious about. 
It's not too small of a thing to get under your skin and, and, and cumulatively build you up into a panic with a whole lot of other little small things. So I think, I think Paul knows what he's talking about when he says, yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter how, how big or how small, you know, you have got to lay that down and give it to him, right? You have got to put that at his feet. You've got to do that in prayer, and you're going to thank him for all he's done. Gratitude is the replacing of anxiety. And he says, and then peace that passes all understanding, again, as I memorized it as a kid, peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds as you walk in Christ Jesus. I mean, I know it sounds like, hey, this is simple. It's not. Because the moment most of us lay it down, we get done and we pick it right back up. And so those, those brief moments where you're like, well, I can't be thankful and anxious, but I sure seem anxious all the time. Well, it's because you don't know what it means. You don't have the self-discipline yet to remain in gratitude. The way you so easily drift to remain and anxiety. It's a, it's, a, it's a discipline. How do we do it? Well, there's a, there's a great psalm. I give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I recount all of his wonderful deeds. You know, even to myself, I have to recount all of his wonderful deeds. I found this uh, just this month. This was one of those Thanksgiving things. Uh, I don't get any endorsement, by the way. If you buy this, uh, it doesn't give me any money. just wanted you to know that. Okay. Um, this is a little 12, little 12 shaped dice, a little 12 sided dice that you can have at the dinner table. It's called the Graticube. You can roll it and it has 12 props. You can do it at the dinner table with your family. You can do it. I was, I actually bought this for our staff's, our staff retreat and it didn't come in fast enough, but I knew I would need it for this message. So, um, but you know, you, you roll it and it gives you a, a food. What am I thankful about food? I could go on this for hours. <laughs> How thankful I am for food, Right. I mean, there's so many great prompts. There's, there's who, you know, what made you smile today? What, what, who did you help today? Who helped you today? Did there, is there, did you experience something unexpected? Was there a challenge that you actually want to be thankful for today? Were there friends or, again, food or somewhere, something special to you? Like, there's just an opportunity to just take a moment, even for yourself or with others, to go, you know what? I just have to spend some time recounting the goodness of God and being grateful. Why is it so necessary? Because if it's not, listen, if I don't do that, I'm going to get caught back up. I'm going to get caught back up. Even if I don't struggle with anxiety normally, I'm going to get caught up in the culture because I see it. It's, it's, I'm exposed to it every day. Here's how Paul says it, and I kind of want to end it with this, just to give a little measure of grace, just in case you're here and uh, you know, you've missed a few of the other things I've said. Just, just, just want you to hear this, these, these words from Paul to, to uh, the church in Thessalonica. He says this before he kind of says the same thing he said in, in, uh, to the church in Philippi. He says, brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, take tender care of those who are weak, but be patient with everyone. Okay? And that's just part of, I think, the call of a, of a good community of faith, okay? Yeah, if you're, if, you're, if you're lazy about this and you know better, like, there's, there's warning that needs to come, okay? 
There's encouragement that needs to come always to one another. And we need to take care of those who are who may be struggling. And again, I don't know you personally. I don't know what you struggle with, with anxiety. Listen, our kids, again, I think I said this earlier, our kids are being raised in schools and an educational system right now. There's more anxiety coming out of the next generation than I've ever seen because of the environments of our schools and what they're putting into our kids. How are we going to fight that as parents? How are we going to help them be set apart in a culture of chronic anxiety? Guys, I'm just, I'm just saying, like, we want to be patient with one another. This is, not, this is not a message to kind of slap people around this Thanksgiving. Everybody hear me? You know, Thanksgiving, don't start slapping all your family around like, you need to be grateful. <laughs> you know, be tender and generous and patient with everyone. But he goes on to remind us again, be joyful always. Or sorry, quick, another quick two things. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to help each other and all people. Then he says, always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in, what's those two words? Yeah, that's a tough one. It's easier to be thankful in the good circumstances. Psalm said just to recount all the ways that God's been good to me. Well, boy, what a real, what a real testimony to be able to be thankful in all circumstances. Why? Because it's God's will. For those who belong to Christ, what's God's will for your life? I don't know what God's will is. Yeah, you do. It's right there. This, not to get it too deep, but this, this spirit of gratitude, this action we take is not the thing that people will see. It's not the thing that sets us apart. Okay? It's just not. It's not the thing that will set you apart. It's just your, your discipline of living in a state of gratitude. What sets us apart in a world of chronic anxiety is that we live and walk and move in the peace of Christ that no one understands. We live and move because the peace of Christ, which passes all understanding, guards our hearts and minds from getting caught up in the hysteria. Guards our hearts and minds from the thing we might personally struggle anxiety with guards our hearts and minds as we live in Christ. That's what will really set us apart. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much that we can, by your Holy Spirit, read your word and have it speak to us individually. That even though there's a message today that's true, I know for many people, God, listening now, listening here, We'll be listening later online that, that struggle, maybe have some very unique struggles when it comes to anxiety. God, just by your spirit, do the work, speak the word of life to us. Help us see and understand what your word is saying. That's true for all of us and might be specifically true for us individually as we battle our own illnesses. God, thank you for a church that continues to champion your word as the truth, the absolute truth that we can lean into, that we can understand. And God, it doesn't make it easy because we still have to be the ones to, to do the action. We still have to be the ones to kind of replace our, our 
are quickly drift to anxiety moments with hearts and a state of gratitude for you. God, give us the tools, the discipline, and the, and the, and the ability to experience more and more of the peace that passes all understanding. And God, may that be the thing that people see. May that be the witness that people recognize in our life that sets us apart for you. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.